0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: The Policy Institute at UC Davis uh, was established to try and make sure that research that's happening on the UC Davis campus is making it into the policy-making process here in Sacramento, but also in D.C. and internationally as well. So it's really my pleasure to be uh, part of hosting this workshop today where we're really talking about the issues around climate change adaptation and mitigation and how best to be utilizing and managing our natural resources in order to enhance those uh, climate change benefits, but then also shared co-benefits of natural resource management. Um, I'm a recent transplant from Washington D.C. Uh, I spent six years as a, a Obama administration appointee, and my most recent appointment was at USAID, where I ran the climate change initiative for the agency in 40 countries around the world. More than two thirds of our programming at USAID actually focused on how to be using natural resources and natural landscapes, both in terms of carbon sequestration and in climate change adaptation. So it's really my pleasure to be able to take those experiences from the international stage and be able to to talk about what's going on here in California. Because, of course, California really is at a big forefront in terms of leadership, not only in the United States, but also internationally. One of the other things we wanted to touch on here at this conference is to look at co-benefits also of uh are managing our natural resources. And just one example I wanted to, to raise is we did an analysis at USAID about our biodiversity programming and our climate change programming. And we tried to see where we were prioritizing biodiversity for an outcome impact and where we were prioritizing carbon sequestration uh, for outcome. And it only overlapped really about a third of the time. So it's an important thing to realize that as we are managing our natural systems for carbon sequestration or adaptation, we can't make assumptions that there will be co-benefits without uh, doing those measurements as well. So I'm really looking forward uh, to our conversation today about how we're going to be getting a handle on the best ways to be optimizing our management for climate change benefits, um, and then figuring out how we're going to be measuring, monitoring, and reporting on those benefits. It's a really complex a complex issue that requires input and conversation and dialogue from all levels of government, from the non-governmental organization sector, from university researchers, from the private sector, from philanthropic organizations, etc. So we're so pleased that you're here today. Um, I just want to make... Uh, A couple other announcements in terms of logistics and other uh, events that are upcoming, just to make you aware of. This is really a hot topic, and we're glad to be part of this community that's pursuing conversations on how to be using natural resources for climate change in the state. There's an upcoming conference in April, uh, 10th to the 11th, on the uh, Sacramento State Campus called Water and Fire Impacts of Climate Change, um, and this is really an action conference. I was talking with Michelle Stevens earlier today about that, so just for your awareness, and there are some flyers in the back. Additionally, the second California Adaptation Forum is happening in September down in Long Beach, and that's another real uh, excellent opportunity to be continuing this conversation. So, We are very pleased to be kicking this off. We are not going to be doing long bio introductions today. If you'd like to read people's biographies in greater detail, they can be found at the Institute for Transportation Studies website. Um, That's the ITS up there next to the UC Davis uh, Policy Institute logo. So with that, I'd like to turn it over to Lewis Blumberg, who is the director of California's climate change programs for the Nature Conservancy and our co-sponsor today.
0: Well, thank you, Kit, and good morning. It's so nice to see all of you here today. So, um, May 10, 2013. Who knows that remembers where you were on May 10th in the year 2013? Well, about. Three years ago, the Nature Conservancy partnered with the UC Davis Policy Institute for Energy, Environment, and the Economy. And we held a very similar symposium right over in the gallery right here in Sacramento. Were any of you in the audience here today, were any of you at that symposium? We've got one, Mr. Hopkins. Yes, thank you. We've got one. Okay. Well, um, a lot has happened in those three years since we did that first symposium. And there we were looking, uh, as we are here, to highlight the role of natural and working lands to successfully fight climate change and develop solutions from our land base. Um, So let's look back on what's happened, just a few things over the last three years. So 2014 was the hottest year on record, followed closely by 2015, which is now the hottest year on record. And it looks like our winter this year will be the hottest winter on record. Um, and then we know that the drought continued throughout that time. Um, we've had at least four years of drought. And more recently, we've seen an epidemic of dead trees in the Sierra Nevada from drought and heat uh, exacerbated by climate change. But enough of the doom and the gloom. We could spend the rest of the day talking about that. But, but I I'm, I'm choose to be optimistic, and I think there are many reasons to be optimistic, uh, including – around climate change in general and about the role of nature to provide solutions for climate change. So I just want to touch on a few things and point out a, a few uh, <coughs> events that have happened in this, in this three year period. So uh, recently the ARB released the first compliance report and it shows that AB 32, California's climate regulatory program, is working well. They've achieved a 99.8% compliance rate, emissions are beginning to come down Um, They're generating financial incentives for sustainable forestry through the forest offset programs. Um, They're catalyzing, it's catalyzing a transition to a low-carbon economy, uh, and it's providing funding for activities in disadvantaged communities. And it proves that you can regulate climate change and grow the economy at the same time. Uh, Earlier this year, at the start of the year, Governor Brown announced a new strategy to combat climate change, and he listed five pillars and in, in that list, the fifth pillar for increase, was increasing sequestration from natural and working lands. He followed that up in April with an executive order uh, and had many parts, including new uh, emission reduction targets for the state. Uh, and he also directed state agencies to in- consider climate change in all of his investments and plans. This is a great opportunity for us to work with the administration to figure that out. Um, he also directed agencies to prioritize natural infrastructure. So again, these are, these are great opportunities for us, um, and great success so far, great progress. Then um, we've also seen funding for activities that reduce greenhouse gas emissions and increase carbon sequestration generated from the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. This is a pool of money generated by the auction of allowances to uh, emit uh, carbon in, um, in the AB 32 program. Um, and this year's proposed budget, the governor is proposing to spend $355 million uh, on programs from natural and working lands. And there's a whole variety of programs, some of which you're going to hear about today um, later on. And then the last point I want to make here uh, in, that, in terms of progress in California is last year the legislature passed and the governor signed several bills that highlighted natural climate solutions um, as a way to reduce risk and enhance resilience in California. And a, a working group just got kicked off by the Office of Planning and Research trying to figure out how that's going to go. So there's great reason to be optimistic here in California. There's also reason, if, if you look globally, to be optimistic. So last December... The, at the United Nations Climate Change Conference in, uh, in Paris, 194 countries came and agreed together, first global agreement to work together on climate change. Very exciting. So 190 of those countries eventually came with pledges to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And they had, a, had to have an appendix that described what they were going to do. Well, 120 of those 190 said they were going to look for reductions from the land sector. But there's no details in any of this. So this is another opportunity for us to help the world figure out how do natural and working lands contribute greenhouse gas benefits globally. In California, U.S. globally. So it's it's a great opportunity here. So I would say looking back over these last three years, there has been a much um an increase in interest and awareness of natural climate solutions. But it's clear that we can't meet our ambitious reduction goals that are necessary by only transforming the the, uh, energy uh, systems and the transportation systems. We've got to look to the land base. Um, And one of the unique features of using nature as a solution for climate change is that it can actually remove carbon from the atmosphere. It it sucks it down and puts it back in the earth where it was before. Um, And then it can also, in some cases, and not in every case, it can enhance resilience and reduce climate amplified risk. So we have the wonderful policy architecture in place in California to, to really take this up to the next level. Um, and, and it's a challenge to figure out how to measure it, monitor it, report it. Um, there's, there's activity underway at ARB. We may hear a little bit later um, about a workshop coming up on this. Um, and, and we have this opportunity to figure this out. How do you actually quantify greenhouse gas benefits from our land base? in a way that gives you certainty. And we can use the, the platforms that are available to export this nationally and globally. So I'm hoping that, that today's conference adds to this awareness. Um, we're going to hear, um, after our keynote, uh, we're going to hear a panel on science, with summarizing some of the latest science around this topic. And then we're going to have a, a, a policy discussion with, with um, some administration folks and some uh, uh, state legislators. Um, We're going to have a speech from Senator Pavley, uh, uh, paying tribute to her uh, before lunch. Uh, After lunch, there'll be a a panel on integration of the natural and working land sector with many of the other sectors that are are involved in in climate change here in California. We're going to close it off with a case study panel that's also going to have uh, some uh, legislative staff people to talk about how to leverage the – Activities that have already been done and take them up to scale. So I'm hoping that that the people leave here with a greater understanding of the power of nature to address climate change, both comprehensively and effectively here in California and globally. So with that, I would like to introduce our um, keynote speaker this morning. Um, He's, Wade Crowfoot serves as the Deputy Cabinet Sec- Secretary and Senior Advisor to Governor Brown. Uh, he joined the Brown Administration in 2011. He's worked on a range uh, of transportation, infrastructure, and environmental issues, including zero-emission vehicles, uh, and he's helped to build the international partnerships that the, the governor has forged with China Mexico and other countries, several of which include forests as part of their, their work. Um, prior to that, he worked... Uh, as a regional director for the Environmental Defense Fund, and before that, he was senior environmental advisor to the then mayor of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom. So please join me in welcoming Wade Crofit.
2: Well, these, these two fires that happened over this last summer that actually resulted in a presidential disaster declaration, the Butte Fire in Calaveras County uh, and the Valley Fire in Lake County, um, acted completely outside of the computer modeling. And believe it or not, the computer modeling runs hundreds of scenarios of, of, of how the fire will act and how quickly it will move. And in both of those cases, the fire actually moved more quickly than any of those hundreds of models that, comp- that create an average uh, 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 predicted. In other words, the forests are, are hotter and more dangerous than they've ever been. And you have a situation where firefighters uh, in the Valley Fire actually had to shelter in place, which means they actually had to use um, a fire retardant blanket, uh, get to the ground and let the fire move over them because the fire was moving uh, so quickly. That's obviously uh, the path of last resort for firefighters. Now the four of the firefighters survived, uh, but not without grievous injury. And it just suggests, again, how How wildfires uh, are changing as a result of the drought and, and climate change. I think the area that's really evolved most recently for us as a crisis is this epidemic of tree mortality in the state. You have portions of the state that may lose a hundred percent, a hundred percent, um, of the, of their signature species of trees, like ponderosa pine in the southern Sierra. Uh, as a result of uh, years of drought that have enabled this endemic bark beetle, uh, to wipe out, uh, large portions of forest across the Sierra and across the state. So, uh, Lewis was saying we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't, uh, stay in the sort of, uh, mired in gloom and doom. But I tell you, it's on my mind because a lot of our work in California right now is actually reacting to the impacts of climate change. Now the good news is that nature is not only uh, evidence of the impacts of climate change; it's part of the solution. And as Lewis noted, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, solar energy, electric cars, uh, those types of technologies, energy storage. But an often overlooked element of climate action is, of course, what you're here, you're here to talk about today, and that, are, that is natural solutions. Uh, to, uh, to climate change and how actually effective land stewardship and natural resource management, uh, can reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I want to just read you an excerpt of the governor's inaugural address that Lewis mentioned because I think it's important to note, um, a lot of what got attention if you can, if you watch, uh, California politics is the governor made a 50-50-50, uh, uh, pledge, uh, to shoot for 50% reduction in petroleum use by 2030, 50% renewable energy, uh, portfolio, and, uh, a 50% reduction in, uh, energy usage, or I should say doubling energy efficiency savings in, in existing buildings. But was what was less known, uh, was, uh, two other elements, uh, or, or the fourth and fifth pillar of that pledge. Uh, one being on, uh, on those compounds with high global warming potential like methane, but the other, uh, on natural systems. And he said in his inaugural address, we must manage farm and rangelands, forests and wetlands so they can store carbon. All of this is a very tall order. It means that we continue to transform, uh, our, our system in, into uh, a new reality. And then he said, uh, these challenges require enormous innovation, research, and investment. And we will need active collaboration at every stage with our scientists, engineers, entrepreneurs, businesses, and officials at all levels. And that's really what's manifesting here today is that collaboration, particularly on this element around land-based or natural solutions. I'll say that that as I started my uh, talk here, this is really possibly the most complex part of, of climate action it's fairly uh, well-known and easy to understand how reducing emissions from a power plant reduce greenhouse gas emissions or improving fuel efficiency or moving to zero-emission vehicles with, with no tailpipe. Um, but what is, less, what is less known and well-understood is how effective land management can actually capture carbon or uh, avoid uh, releasing carbon in, in, into the atmosphere. And I think a lot of the people who raise their hands from state government here today understand the benefits of effective land management to to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or capture greenhouse gas emissions. But it's really critical for us in the state to be able to quantify um, the effectiveness of those strategies, uh, particularly because uh, a major source of funding uh, that's starting to be focused in this area, the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, uh, comes from California's cap-and-trade program. And there is a very strong and important legal test that needs to be met uh, to demonstrate that funds expended through that program actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So I really think more than any other area of the state's climate action, this, this area really requires the merging of effective science um, with uh, effective uh, pilot programs and ultimately, uh, effective demonstration projects that this can actually work. Uh, part of the challenge is downscaling science. Uh, we know we know about very large general impacts as re- relates to climate change, within some band of uncertainty. But part of the challenge in California is to downscale impacts so we can understand what they what they will be for uh, for California. So people like me can uh, chase climate change more effectively. Uh, but then to understand the science as, as well so that we can understand what proactive investments or proactive programs you all are working on, what what impact they can actually have in a positive way uh, reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions from California. I'll say lastly that Lewis mentioned the Safeguarding California program. Uh, the governor issued an executive order in 2015 following that inaugural address that I quoted um, that was really the most um, concrete, uh, directive on climate adaptation or climate resilience in the last several years. And it directed the state to actually develop plans sector by sector, uh, to, uh, to safeguard California from, uh, from, uh, climate impacts. And again, that's good, but that's, um, in some level, the kind of the reactive side of climate change. I think what I'm really most interested and in, most um, inspired by are projects that not only build the resilience of our state, but also continue to help us to reduce greenhouse gas pollution. So, Godspeed here today. The work that you do is actually very important, and I can say that uh, there is, a, I would say, there, there has been a gap in knowledge in this area, and the more that you all can do to fill the gap, I think the more state resources and state priority can actually move into this space to ensure that natural solutions uh, are part of our overall strategy. Thanks very much. Good.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Wade. Um, and I just want to take this opportunity to put the level of um, uh, investment from the state into context. At USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, where I just came from, our annual budget for working on climate change adaptation and mitigation through direct programming in 40 countries around the world was $350 million a year. So this is the level of investment that this uh, administration has put on really solving this problem um, in the state. So I just wanted to put that in context. Thank you so much, Wade. Um, the This panel will be talking about best the best science that we have
3: out there right now to help us make policy. Um, This governor and this administration is very committed to climate policy, of course, but using the best available science to make sure that we're making decisions that are really rooted in understanding of systems, in understanding of how those systems work, and ensuring that, yes, while they confer climate benefits, they also confer the other benefits that we actually heard from an earlier commenter. So we may be targeting carbon sequestration or greenhouse gas emissions reductions, but the best thing about natural systems is that as you really focus on one ecosystem service, you may also be getting many other services along the way. And um, we'll have a good discussion about how we can actually take project scale information and potentially scale it up uh, for use in larger programs around the state. And then we'll also talk a little bit more about um, replicability of these types of projects that that they're all working on, in particular systems in the state, to other systems throughout the state, so that we can ensure that, again, our climate policy can expand more um, to incorporate not just project scale, but full eco regional or ecosystem scale approaches.
4: I'm an associate professor at UC Davis and have been working uh, for a little over a decade on the problem of the terrestrial carbon sink, um, typically at the global scale, but also, you know, more and more starting to recognize that we have to begin to address the adapt- adaptation side of the carbon cycle. So a lot of the work has focused to this end on the idea of what is the mitigation capacity of the carbon cycle to deal with fossil fuel emissions. And it appears as if about 25% of the emissions that go into the atmosphere through human activities are absorbed by forest biomass um, distributed around the globe. And so this has been providing a tremendous ecosystem service for humanity because it provides somewhat of a backstop on how much of the CO2 stays in the atmosphere to cause anthropogenic climate change and induce uh, major impacts not only on ecosystems but also on human health um, and the economy. And so I'm gonna talk a little bit about where I see in California opportunities to bring together some of the basic understanding that's emerging about how the carbon cycle has the capacity to adapt and sustain itself as a sink and where co-benefits between that mitigation capacity might lie with other benefits, such as water conservation, um, as we're experiencing climate impacts and the drought, and biodiversity conservation, among other things. California has this spectacular array of diversity, which is both um, the solution and the problem. It's a solution in that we have this tremendous reservoir for adaptive capacity. And as an ecosystem scientist, we like to think of ecosystems as complex adaptive systems. And so what that means is that these systems are poised to adapt to change, but the changes that take place are not always the ones that we as people would consider beneficial change. And so when we start to think about the interface with mitigation, we're really starting to put that into the box of how is this going to benefit the climate system? Um, in the future, and how are the adaptations likely to play out for other ecosystem services that we rely on. So in California, with this complex array of different vegetation types distributed in very close proximity, we have this pool of possibilities in terms of adaptation. But we can also have ecosystems evolve toward um, dead ends as the climate system changes too quickly. And so this is re- really where we find ourselves at that interesting interface between this complex adaptive system, which is being uh, brought about through interactions that happen locally, sometimes at the genetic level through rapid evolution. And then we have these larger scale feedbacks that occur at the property of the ecosystem itself. Um, we also know that California is one of the 25 biodiversity hotspots throughout most of the state in the California uh, floristic province. and so. There's really uh, an important thing here um, beyond just the carbon cycle or the climate system, which has to do with the intrinsic property of biodiversity and its importance um, for many types of ecosystem services. So I think the goal, um, when you're trying to appraise opportunities for mitigation adaptation, is to select for conditions that allow for mitigation capacity. For example, CO2 sequestration, as John just mentioned. but also optimizing the traits of adaptation. So traits such as robustness or a resiliency of a system to change or genetic and functional diversity, which ultimately is going to play into the capacity for a system to adjust to change. The greater the genetic diversity, the greater the probability that that system will be able to evolve or tap into traits that make it plastic in the face of change and thereby provide some mitigation capacity in the future. But we also have to keep in mind that we need clear uh, socioeconomic markets in place. And obviously in California here, we're at the forefront of developing systems that are considering the incentivized ways in which we can go about managing these resources and maintaining economic benefits for all. And the challenge then would come across, I think, in several different um, arenas. But to put it pretty simply, the first would be that climate impacts are already present. And everyone here is well aware of the drought that California is facing. This is just one drought on top of many. But of course, we've had a very significant drought year with wildfire risk increasing, which has human health impacts in terms of air quality and the capacity for these ecosystems to absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. And it's intermixed with many other risks so widespread nitrogen pollution from fossil fuel combustion as well as the fertilizers we're putting on to agricultural ecosystems to grow food um, about half of that has a tendency to go airborne or go into our groundwater system thereby increasing the risk to the life-supporting systems that we need so these risks are being superimposed upon the climate impacts and this makes it really challenging for the carbon cycle to continue to mitigate the changes that have been going on. The other thing is that mitigation is not fated to align with adaptation. So I can develop a forest plantation with trees that are mono-dominant that have tremendous capacity to absorb CO2 very quickly. But they may have very limited capacity to then adapt to climate change because of a mono-dominant type system, you don't have the different functional characteristics which can um, evolve or take place um, dramatically with a drought, allowing for that ecosystem to persist. And so you can end up with these things not being necessarily aligned, and I think it's important to understand we need to find that interface where these two um, key features of ecosystems align, both the mitigation and the adaptation capacity, And of course, as I mentioned initially, well, we have to have markets in place that incentivize the businesses as well as the private and public sector to think about how can we take advantage of these natural resources and um, turn them into economic goods that provide win-win-win scenarios for not only biodiversity, adaptation, and mitigation, but also the capacity for the state's economy to continue to grow. And here we can see that the forest sector is providing a tremendous amount of offset in the california cap and trade and so as we continue to think about ways in which we can invest in forest uh, markets i think we should start really thinking about these biodiversity hotspots which are tied into this unique unique geologic feature of rock nitrogen which is increasing the amount of carbon storage by up to about five times so i just want to end with also this side of it and we had a question this morning which dealt with the sort of intrinsic value and properties of biodiversity. And everyone is familiar probably with the story of George Washington's axe. You know, he cut down the cherry tree, and the question was, uh, George, why did you cut down the cherry tree? And he said, I don't know, but I cannot tell a lie. And so this sort of um, idea has continued on throughout our society. Now, if I were to tell you I had George Washington's axe, but I replaced the blade and I replaced the handle... Do I still have George Washington's axe? So the important thing that I think this demonstrates is the fundamental value, the intrinsic value of ecosystems. That just because these ecosystems maintain the same function, in the case chopping down a tree or taking up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, does not mean that that ecosystem still maintains its intrinsic property of biodiversity or other features of adaptation. And so this is really where the tension lies. We can have systems that function very well in sequestering CO2, but maybe lose out on some of the intrinsic properties that are of value to humans. Thank you.
3: Um, well, thank you so much. Um, we actually have a special visitor here who can um, talk a little bit more about how we're Hearing from everyone about the complexity of California's systems, but also the wonders that we have in the state and trying to make sure that we actually accomplish our climate goals through really meaningful policy. So if we could have the governor come up and just say a few words that would be wonderful. Governor Brown)
5: Climate change, it's a very hard topic uh, politically or rhetorically to talk about because it has so many aspects to it. And I don't think we should ever underestimate how difficult it is to deal with a problem that's global in scope uh, unless uh, a huge uh, number of, of leaders and business people and other others uh, all collaborate together Uh, get on the same page, uh, we're going to have a very hard time making the kind of impact and course correction uh, that is needed. And when I talk about making the impact, it's not just one thing. It's not just about reducing the amount of uh, gasoline we put in cars or the amount of trips we take. Um, It's so many different things that have to be taken into account, the manufacturing, the packaging, uh, the way people live. Uh, the way food is grown, uh, the whole meat production, Uh, across the whole board uh, of our modern existence, uh, different changes have to be introduced. And how to introduce changes from an idea um, to move through the market set of incentives. And how does that work? And certainly a part of it is intelligent laws and regulations and also uh, the response that's needed, and constantly managing that system. It's very difficult, and uh, different people focus on different things, uh, but one thing we know when we're trying to look at the overall impact is what, uh, what is the quantity of greenhouse gases, what are the gases, or what are the emissions, and what are the interactions, and how are we doing? And can we actually uh, move downward From California, we're about 460 or 460 million tons. Can we get down to, um, uh, how far down can we get by 2020, 2025? And what are the different ways? And there's no quick way to do it. Um, It takes uh, so many different interventions in so many different sectors with so many different players and so much money moving in one direction or another that it, it's hard to even describe it. It's hard to think about it, uh, much less actually to execute and to make progress. Uh, we are doing that um, to a degree that I think has to constantly be evaluated, but the California Air Resources Board is, with their scoping session, looking at ways to uh, implement uh, AB 32. And then, of course, we, there'll be need to deal with cap and trade and all that that uh, involves uh, going forward. And there's lots of colliding interests. If you look at our national uh, political theater, uh, you have so many different uh, points of view. And that's also true in California. You have people who say that the state's going way too far in curbing uh, legitimate activity. And we have that coming from oil companies. We have that coming from electric utilities who are now, for the PUC, asking to reverse some rulings on, on uh on the incentives that are provided for solar. And then on the other hand, you have others saying, well, nothing's really being done. So it's a pretty uh, chaotic uh, landscape. And yet, in order to be effective, we need a strong, uh, unified effort dealing with a completely complex set of variables uh, over a wide range of, of land and institutions and time. So it, it's quite an undertaking and I would say from the political process, it's not very digestible. Yeah, the political has to work in, uh, well, I think Twitter is about as extensive a thought process that is needed in, in the political world. You've got to say it quick. It's The word you probably recognize is soundbite or 140 characters or uh, what do they call it? A good line. That's a good line when they say the president someone did good, did well in a in the presidential debate what are they referring to they're usually referring to a one-liner of some kind so that is really the currency of the realm and the basis of our democratic governance one-liners so hopefully you can come up with a couple of one-liners <laughs> and reduce all this complexity to some digestical digestible political morsels and uh, In that, I'll do my best to help you, but I wouldn't underestimate the challenge. It's pretty daunting, and if you look at it too clearly, you might even uh, be a little depressed. Uh, If you look at what it is, if you look to what it's like, well, I I won't talk about what is going on in the larger level, but in California, we have plenty of challenges. Outside of California, they don't even know what the challenges are. So there it is, and come up with some good stuff because I am very interested in what our rangelands can do, uh, being the owner of a 2,500, be at least a part owner of a 2,500 acre spread. And one of the things I notice, um, one of the things I've known since I was very young is that we have a big hillside with almost no trees. And I was told by my grandmother they were cut down to, uh, to supply the mines, um, but other people say, well, no, it's the cows. Um, they cut them down for wood, but then the cows trump on the land, and nothing grows. And it's kind of interesting. You have lots of 100-year-old oak trees. You have very few 10-year-old oak trees. So something's happened to change the ball game, And to change that back, I think that's a very important topic. I hope you'll come up with some concrete solutions that you'll send me. Thank you. <laughs>
6: Yes, those are uh, uh, big shoes to follow, Uh, (laughs) uh, but what an honor to have the governor here, who is really one of the leaders in the world, probably uh, that we could count on our hands, who's really uh, making a difference with many of us together, but uh, what an honor to have him here today. So, yes, I'm Ellie from Point Blue Conservation Science. Okay, so just real quickly, Point Blue was founded as Point Ray's Bird Observatory in 1965. Today we have 140 staff and seasonal scientists that work all over California, other parts of the West, up and down the Pacific Flyway and the ocean and as far away as Antarctica. And our highest priority is advancing nature-based solutions to climate change and helping to... Uh, reduce the impacts of environmental change both on wildlife and human communities. We manage over a billion ecological observations today. Most of that is not ours, but from uh, partners across the country and across the hemisphere. And our goal is to use that data to help uh, guide climate-smart conservation actions. Today at Point Blue, we have 14 partner biologists – partnering with Natural Resources Conservation Service in different offices across the Central Valley and the Central Coast. And we are working with over 400 ranchers who manage over 300,000 acres. That doesn't mean they're all doing the right thing for this multiple-benefit approach to securing life as we know it, but we're on the right track by building relationships. The governor said, how do you reach out to all these people? It takes time. It takes patience. It takes listening. It takes working together and bringing good science to the community needs. Here's an example from Tomcat Ranch on the coast near Pescadero, south of San Francisco, where in just three years, changing the cattle rotation, uh, giving the pastures more rest and varying the timing of rest, there was a 72% increase in perennial grass cover. Um, We're measuring carbon now, and we should be seeing increases in carbon sequestered, in the amount of water in the soil as well. For rangelands to provide multiple benefits and buffer against the ever-increasing extremes that we will continue to experience, we need to protect these lands. We need to avoid conversion, particularly to urban development, but also to intensive crops. We need to change grazing practices, restore riparian corridors, apply compost where feasible, and plant trees and woody plants. I, I love this picture. It's unfortunately so California. But we need to protect these spaces for the ecological benefits, Riparian habitat provides another huge opportunity for us to have nature-based solutions to climate change. 90% of riparian habitat has been lost to development or agriculture over the past 150 years in California, but has huge restoration benefits filtering water and promoting groundwater recharge, capturing carbon and preparing ecosystems for change, providing habitat for fish and birds and other wildlife, protecting soil and supporting pollinators for food security, and increasing property values and providing recreational opportunities. There's a new study from Marin County, from the uh, Marin County Extension under David Lewis, that shows that restoring three miles of riparian forest equals the reduction goals, the the carbon emissions reduction goals in Marin County by 2020, which is 84,000 tons of carbon dioxide. It doesn't happen in three years. It happens over several decades. But there's all these other benefits from riparian habitat, and we don't put a dollar figure to them yet, but we need to. This is really exciting. If we can front load it, maybe we re- restore... 15 miles of riparian habitat in each county, and we exceed the 2030 goals that the governor and some of you have been part of setting. So there, there's some really exciting possibilities here about what we can do, and over longer periods of time costs less and actually provides more benefits to society, but again, we don't usually put dollar figures to a lot of these. Tidal marsh ecosystems are another habitat type which I'm not sure was included in the previous two talks about uh Vegetation as well as below-ground sequestration, but there's some new studies, including by uh, John Calloway, that are showing that the potential for tidal marsh to sequester carbon is quite significant. And, of course, there are many, many other benefits. This is a drawing from the um, Baylands Habitat Goals update for uh, climate change that was recently released, and uh, it visually shows all these benefits that include reducing flooding, um, slowing down sea level rise, filtering out pollutants, providing fish, nurseries, and wildlife habitat, sequestering carbon, and, of course, recreational benefits. So there are several new studies out, one showing that tidal marshes combined with earthen levees can reduce the construction and maintenance costs of levees by almost 50%. This is a picture of what they call the horizontal levee, so you have some ecological part to it. It's not just a concrete wall, but it has something that can benefit wildlife and help us in addressing climate change, both in terms of impacts and sequestration. This concept of ecological engineering is critical for us, we should always be prioritizing this. Is there a way to do it with ecological benefits? It may even be a hard solution combined with a nature solution. We can do it. It's happening. But we've got to test it more, and we have to monitor it and see how it's working so we can keep uh, learning how to do it better. Another study that came out excuse <clears> me, <throat> in 2013 showed that coastal habitats across the country or this natural infrastructure reduced risk to people and property by 50%. We we don't have a ton of these studies yet, but we're going to have more and more of them over the next few years, I promise you. And I will be surprised if they come less than this. I think they're going to show even more the benefits of nature-based solutions. And then there's some really exciting creativity that's going on. This is a picture of the Sears Point restoration that's in uh, southern Sonoma County at the northern part of San Francisco Bay off San Pablo Bay National Wildlife Refuge. Sonoma Land Trust took the lead here in... Uh, purchasing 1,000 acres of formerly diked baylands. Um, it's been 10 years in the process, and uh, I was honored to be there the day that they broke the levee. Um, what, what they did was that they designed these mounds so that as the water comes in, as the tide comes in, uh, the mounds capture more of the sediment and that they can build faster. So we're thinking of creative ways, how could you get tidal marsh to grow faster in response to sea level rise? They're doing some really cool things, and then I went there recently at high tide and all filled with water. And in another few years, it'll probably look like this. This is a, a restoration site right next to it that's 20 years old. And you can see how it's filled in and silted in. And there are little islands there that protect species at high tide. And uh, it, this is also a reminder that we have to work with young people. This is uh, some kids working through our project called Students and Teachers Restoring a Watershed. Um, engaging the next generation is essential to secure our future. So bottom line, no more business as usual. We obviously have to reverse greenhouse gas emissions, transition to clean, efficient, and equitable energy and water use economy, and prioritize nature-based solutions. It is required for success. We have to include nature as part of this. What will we start doing differently? I love this. This guy decided to make his own bike boat to drive from Oakland to San Francisco. We gotta be creative and you can do it kind of inexpensively too. we need to be bold, we need to innovate, we need to optimize the power of nature-based climate solutions. And if we do, we can have a future where the headlines in August of 2030, after we have another 12 years or 15 years of drought, major investments in nature-based solutions pay off, water flows, carbons captured, wildlife increases, despite drought and snowpack loss. We can have this. But we have to really work hard together to do that. South San Francisco Bay marshes are thriving. Natural infrastructure protects cities, stores carbon, and saves wildlife. And then I love this headline. Green infrastructure protects New York City from the latest superstorm following California's lead. (laughs) October 2045. (laughs) So our vision for the future is that because of our collaborative climate-smart conservation actions today... Healthy ecosystems will sustain thriving wildlife and human communities well into the future. Thanks so much.
7: Um, I've been in public office really since 1982. Local government. I started when I was 10. No, um, local government, and then this is my 14th and last year in the legislature. People ask me all the time on. Uh, they just sort of jump fast forward into climate change without realizing historically in California really what led us there, and there was a lot of people's good work for decades and decades. I jumped in way down the road, um, and the Nature Conservancy, and many of you in this room have been part of the journey along the way, but uh, if you know the history of air pollution in California, um, you go way back to 1965, because our air was so polluted in the Los Angeles area, and we were in a non-attainment area and out of sync with um, any applicable health standards. I remember as a young child growing up in the San Fernando Valley in the 50s, uh, there were many days a year you weren't ever allowed out for recess or lunchtime. You had to stay in your room. They were red flag alert days. That's how bad the smog level was. We've actually improved even though we have 25 million vehicles uh, running around California on any given day, uh, our air quality is better, uh, but that's how we got into this. It was always about public health and air quality beginning, and that still resonates with the public when we talk about other forms of pollutants like greenhouse gas emissions. So because we predate the Clean Air Act that passed in 1970 or so, um, California is allowed to pass more stringent, emission standards than the federal government. We have an exemption under the Federal Clean Air Act. So I'm always very busy and a little bit um, concerned every time Congress, especially this Congress, uh, starts looking at uh, energy bills, thinking they'll slip in something about taking away uh, California's ability uh, to be preempted from the weaker federal government standards. But under under the Federal Clean Air Act, we can pass more stringent emission standards, and other states have two choices. They can follow California's lead, or they can go with the federal government standards. This is exactly why um, it leads up to the Supreme Court decision back, it's called Massachusetts versus the EPA, that says, you know, um, air pollutants are not just criteria air pollutants. They can be in forms of greenhouse gas emissions because they impact and affect climate and weather. And uh, therefore, the Federal Environmental Protection Agency has the authority to pass legislation to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. That's why uh, President Obama, through executive authority, his ability to affect change relating to global climate change, it all came indirectly through California's use on uh, clean air standards. What's also interesting to me on this timeline, at about the same time our Air Resources Board was heading off on air pollutants, uh, it was very controversial when we established uh, a full California Energy Commission. Uh, I heard from the original authors that it passed by one vote, and I thought, how could energy efficiency be controversial? Well, it, it takes a little more history and background to realize it wasn't just energy efficiency. It was about siting plants, energy plants, and taking away local control. But that was a one-vote margin pass. Then back to 2002, some of you in this room were part of that battle. I went into the legislature in 2001. That was one of my first bills. I had no idea, luckily I didn't, that you'd taking on the oil companies and the automobile manufacturers and everything else was uh, going to be such a challenge. Um, It ended up passing, it was a two-year bill. The learning experience from that, when you're authoring bills, is building good coalitions together. So supporting this kind of measure to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the tailpipe of automobiles um, was challenging and difficult. But the coalitions were the following water agencies who understood the impacts of global climate change on water supplies and snowpack. We had with us health organizations uh, from the California Medical Association and the nurses realizing that um, uh, there is a direct link between warmer temperatures and worse health outcomes, asthma, heat episodes, etc. We also had with us even businesses that we're beginning to understand that there was a market for innovation here in California. Also, uh, of course, environmental organizations were part of the discussion, but it needed to be broader than that. Many cities and counties stepped up to the plate and said, you know, uh, addressing criteria air pollutants by cleaning up our vehicle fleet and addressing climate change and reduction of greenhouse gas emissions was the right thing to do. So this broader coalition then um, just environmental groups really get the credit for how a uh, bill becomes law up here in Sacramento, and how you can sometimes um, not through out spending, but out maneuvering and out messaging the um, uh, the opponents to change. So uh, let's sort of sum it all up with our our shared goals here of what we're gonna to try to work on. I chair the Natural Resources and Water Committee. I chair a select committee on AB 32. These continually be our priorities, um, but uh, obviously being able to quantify emissions reductions is critically important, not only so we get our priorities straight as a legislature, where do we get the most bang for a buck, but how do we get multiple benefits of building in resilience and adaptation as we also mitigate and reduce greenhouse gas emissions that's important. There's an urban forestry program. Um, This year the uh, administration is proposing some one-time expenditures of cap-and-trade monies um, for urban forestry of about 30 million dollars and an additional 150 million dollars for CAL FIRE for Forest Health would welcome your opinions and suggestions as we work with CAL FIRE and um, uh, the most meaningful way possible, and I know uh, some of you are doing just that. Uh, we also have $60 million in the budget for Department of Fish and Wildlife for wetland and watershed restoration that builds in those mul- multiple benefits I had identified on adaptation, perhaps to sea level rise as far as wetlands, and uh, reducing uh, GHGs. Um, We're going to be looking very carefully at improved management of forests to sequester carbon and promote healthy forests. And there's an increasing discussion on how you can increase water supply, reduce the potential for disastrous wildfires, and also reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions through carbon sequestration. I think there's a lot more space in our Uh, A lot more need for understanding in the legislature on why these programs are incredibly important they might not be visible in urban settings where most of us legislators are from but for taking care of the state and reducing impacts from climate change absolutely critical to meet our long-term goals so with that I want to thank you for all of your collective good work over the last several years I'm enjoying my last year in the legislature There's a lot of work to do, and um, uh, carry on. Thank you very much.
1: So we had several hopes and goals over the course of, of today. One was to raise awareness on how natural landscapes can and should be providing solutions for climate change. We got to do that. We got to hear all sorts of many uh, different perspectives on needs and current activities in the state regarding climate change and natural lands. And hopefully, as I feel like I was able to benefit from uh, this workshop today, you got to learn a lot, meet new people, and hopefully identify opportunities for future collaborations and, and work together. So I think we really got a very good picture of where things stand right now in the state, both in terms of challenges and opportunities, um, Wade Crowfoot started us off with the best of times and worst of times analogy. It's we're not in a Pollyanna kind of picture here. Uh, there really are serious challenges around um, the, ex- the impacts of climate change that we're already experiencing. some national politics which are quite challenging. Uh, the need as Governor Brown said to compress all of this complexity into sound bites that can then be used to galvanize action around this. that's no small feat. Um, And then also we learned that our lands here in California are, in fact, a source of emissions and not just a sink, as many of us uh, may have assumed. But it's really good also to recognize how much progress we've been able to make. Uh, Senator Pavley's timeline showing how much she's been able to accomplish over the course of her career and how much we have to thank her for. Um, the leadership of Governor Brown and his administration on advancing these efforts and also the advancement of science in terms of we knew, we really do know a lot uh, in terms of how to be acting and uh, using our natural resources to adapt to climate change and reduce greenhouse gas emissions, even though. Uh, As Mr. Rominger said, we still do need additional research as well. You know, in our last panel, we were able to see how much action is already taking place at a local level, and so we need to be able to take advantage of of learning from those examples. So, a few other things with respect to challenges and themes that we identified today that I hope we can all take back with us. One is we got to recognize the importance of co-benefits in terms of working in our natural landscapes, Uh, And we heard loud and clear the need to quantify the economic benefits associated with those co-benefits. But also there's a resource constraint. The resources that are coming out from AB 32 are designed to be supporting the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions and not necessarily these same co-benefits, which we all value and recognize the need to be investing in as well. So we have to balance that. Um, We have to balance the direction that the administration, the Brown administration, is leading us in with the existing legislative process. We have a real opportunity on March 23rd that we heard about from the California Air Resources Board in terms of the scoping plan meeting on natural lands. So this is a great opportunity to continue to be engaged. Our continued focus in communities, including disadvantaged communities, and looking at ways to integrate multiple sectors. Um, And then... Finally, I thought a really interesting suggestion from Bill Craven today was that, yes, maybe we do need a statutory approach to address carbon sequestration outside of the urban lands that are covered by SB 375. So those are some of the things that I was able to take from today. I hope that that quick wrap-up is of use.